0: the band one more time, by the way. They did just an incredible job with that. Yeah. They're absolutely amazing. And knowing that we can ask them to do a song like Shake It Off and they will absolutely crush it is quite amazing. You know, as they were just saying earlier, uh, with the end of 2023 happening, there are sometimes things that you need to shake off. (laughs) And as a speaker, one of the things I always worry about is that I will have a word or something that I am getting ready to say that I can't quite pronounce or that I will mispronounce. I don't know if that's ever happened uh, to you before. And so I want to start off this morning by asking if any of you happen to have words that you always feel like you have a hard time pronouncing, like you always mispronounce. Now, I I was actually going to have you shout them out and I was going to write them up on a board. And then I thought about the kind of inherent complication (laughs) of having you shout out words that you had trouble Pronouncing (laughs) and thought that might not be the best of ideas. And so I got to at least thinking about what it was for me. And for whatever reason, the last time that I taught here at the venues, I had a word that I had a really hard time pronouncing. And it was the word Thanksgiving. That wouldn't be too complicated, except it was right in the middle of November. And I didn't notice this until a few days later when my parents, who always watch online anytime I'm teaching, so hi, Mom and Dad, uh, they said, hey, Chris, did you know that every time you said the word Thanksgiving, you lisped over the S in the middle? And I thought, huh, I didn't know that. that, That's kind of odd. And not that there's anything wrong with not being able to pronounce a word or anything wrong with having a lisp, but just something that I normally don't do. And so I got to thinking, was there any reason that I was having trouble saying that word. And as I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know, I think part of what it is, is that part of my routine, when I get here on a Sunday morning as I come in, and I fill my venue's coffee mug to the top with hot black coffee. And I don't put any cream or sugar in it. If you do, that's fine. You can be wrong, and I can be right. Uh, (laughs) uh, But I I fill it up with hot black coffee and I drink almost all of it right before I do anything. And so uh, I got to thinking about it. You know, the problem with that is that coffee is a diuretic, which means that you lose a lot of fluids. And so my mouth was getting really, really dry. And so this morning, just so you know, um, I actually didn't have any coffee at all. (laughs) That's also a lie. I would never give this up, Uh, but it did mean that I had a lot of water right before I got up here to start talking because I want to make sure that I can say the words that I need to say today. But it's not just me, by the way. I think we all have some words that we have trouble pronouncing. In fact, the Associated Press in 2022 did some research based on how often people Google the phrase, how do you pronounce word X? and came up with a list of words that many of us have trouble pronouncing. So I'm gonna show you some of them and let's see if we know how to say these. Uh, The first word is this. Anybody know how to say this word? Yeah, it's that like berry bowl thing. It's actually pronounced acai. Oh, you learned something today. Don't tell anyone you learned something at church. Uh, The second one, this is kind of like the lamb sandwich you might get at Greek belly. Anyone know how to say this? Yeah, it's gyro. Yeah, we're better at that one, right? Uh, It's gyro. And then this third one, man how to say this yeah. gif gif it's kind of a debate isn't it and the complicated thing about this one is that depending on who you talk to it could actually be either the dictionary allows it to go either way but the person who came up with the graphic interchange format prefers the pronunciation gif <laughs> and so it's one of those things that uh we all have some words <laughs> Maybe we don't pronounce the same as someone else, or maybe we have some complications saying them. But the truth is that as complicated as some of those words are, there is one, especially at this time of the year, I think it's harder for most of us. In fact, according to Daniel Babinski, anywhere between 35 and 60% of us have trouble saying this one very specific word. And that word is... No. <laughs> you know, we get bombarded with things like holiday parties and new kids' activities or a new semester at school or new demands to make work like the most productive year ever in 2024 or the highest sales number ever. And it can be really easy to feel like we need to say yes to absolutely everything. But let me just be very clear about this. You were never designed to say yes to everything. It is perfectly okay to intentionally say no to things, even if those things seem on the outset like they would be good things to do. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend some time in a story that I think most of us are probably pretty familiar with. It's a story we talk about A lot at this time of the year but we're not going to look at the part that most people are typically most familiar with we're going to look at the story of the wise men but we're not going to talk too much about the gifts that they brought or any of that part instead what we're going to look at is kind of the outer casing of it we're going to look at how they said no in a very particular situation after they encounter the christ child okay And I think what I want us to look at today is, is there something that happens that when we have encountered the divine or when the divine has been awoken, is there a way that we can use that to say no, intentionally moving forward in this year? And so as we look at this, this story shows up in the Christian Bible. It shows up in Matthew chapter two, and we're gonna start in verse one and two. And it says this, that when Jesus was born, Some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the baby who was born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I do want to stop down for just a second on this before we go too far and point out that there are a lot of things that this story doesn't say that you might have been raised thinking that it said. Okay, for example, the story never says that there were three wise men, right? We think that there might have been, or we often may have been brought up being raised that way because there were the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it never says that. We don't know how many people came. It also, by the way, doesn't say that they came and visited Jesus when he was a baby. In fact, our best guess is that they came when he was two because of some things that happened later in the text. And the only reason we think things like the wise men showed up when Jesus was a baby was because what we now call the nativity scene was set up by St. Francis of Assisi in the year 1223, and it kind of stuck. But I, I mentioned that not to shame us, okay? Because I think a lot of times whenever we are kind of untangling parts of our faith or our belief system, we're like, uh, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't line up. I think sometimes we can feel some shame that there had been some things that got embellished or some things that maybe we misunderstood at a different time. So I say this not to shame those embellishments, but rather to celebrate them. Dr. Douglas Hare, who's a professor of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary says it this way. Matthew's sublime story of the adoration of the Magi has often been better understood by poets and artists than by scholars whose microscopic analysis has missed its essence. Our task is to seek a deeper understanding of the story through study of its narrative details without losing our wonderment at the story as a whole. In other words, I think that there is something good about approaching a text like this, the same way that the wise men came into this story. You see, they came in asking questions. Where is this child? They didn't come with all of the blanks filled in for them already. And I think that there's something about that that we can relate to, right? We come to the stories, we come to the Bible, we come to these pieces of faith, and we are trying to make sense of the story of Jesus, just like they did. And it's okay that sometimes, factually, we may get some things wrong. And so I just want to kind of give us a moment to think about both the complication and the beauty that comes from understanding that there are some things that are complicated as we start to try to untangle parts of our faith. Are there maybe parts of our faith that we engaged with when we were younger that we look back at and we're like, I don't know. That, that, that doesn't maybe make as much sense. But I think it's helpful for us to realize that the scripture that we look at is also a story of people trying their best to figure out how to relate to God. It was their best attempt to try to figure out what this thing looked like. What's it look like to follow after the path of love? What's it look like to follow after Jesus? What's it look like to try to understand God better than we used to? And so when we find those places of complication, I want to give us permission to hold those things in tension right between the things that are easy to understand and easy to explain and the things that as we've done more thought about it we're like i am not so sure that that is the case it's a way for us to try to see if there are things that maybe we can do today to better align ourselves with the bigger picture of a loving god and a way to love others as ourselves unfortunately i do want to mention this that when we start in this process, though, of asking questions, of untangling these pieces, that there will inevitably be people who come in and start hating, right? There will inevitably be people who come in and start making demands or start pushing back or saying that's not the way this should go. And so I wanna start today by offering this first piece of information to you, which is this, external demands are inevitable, okay? And you need to just realize this, that external demands are inevitable. After these first couple of verses where Matthew talks about the fact that the wise men entered in, Matthew goes into quite a lot of detail talking about how the birth of Jesus fulfills a lot of the prophecies from what we now call the Old Testament. But then in verse 7, it continues by telling us about how the king at the time, Herod, wanted to meet with the wise men. So I want to share this first with you. It says, Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east. Pretending to be as devout as they were, he got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, go find this child. Leave no stone unturned. And as soon as you find him, send word and I will join you at once in your worship. Instructed by the king, they set off. And then the star appeared again, the same star that they had seen in the eastern sky. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. So I kind of look at this story and I see it as this place where there are these people who come in, these wise men who come in and they have questions. What is going on? How does this thing relate? Because the wise men, realistically, there's zero chance that they were Christian. They weren't Jewish. They were probably Zoroastrians who were seeing this star and following an astrological sign. So they were untangling it. And then suddenly Herod jumps in and says, make it about me. Here's what I want to know. Here's what I have these questions about, and I and I want you to note here, by the way, what this is not. This is not the wise men coming and asking for specific directions to Herod. They weren't asking for him to like clear a path. So I, I want to let you know that there are sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, that it's very appropriate for you to give advice if someone comes to you and says, "How do I do this thing?" Help them. <laughs> it's good. And also understand that there's no reciprocity here, right? It's not like Herod was saying, like, I'll clear the path for you to go there. Sometimes we get this a little bit confused because we look at things like our boss who says, I need you to do this in exchange for a paycheck or a college professor who says, I need you to do this in exchange for an A or whatever. And I want to mention that it's, it's not that. But I wonder how often it happens to each of us on a very granular level When we do things like we steal ourselves looking forward to 2024 to do something to make ourselves better, and before you know it, everyone else is jumping in, giving their opinions about how you can do the thing that you want to do for yourself, right? You decide that 2024 is the year that you're going to watch a little less TV, or you're going to drink a little less, or you're going to go exercise a little more, or you're going to cut out something out of your diet, or whatever it is that you decide that you're gonna do. And then as soon as you tell them that, they're like, here's how I have done that. You know, it's like the old story of, if you're ever stranded on a desert island, the best way to find someone is to start playing solitaire because someone will inevitably come by and show you what you're doing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And And if you think about it, for the wise men initially, it seems to start off with a pretty good gig, right? The king is offering them some pretty specific advice. But I think that when we look a little closer we can see that there are demands that Herod was putting on them that while by themselves are not bad, I think it will help us if we can maybe put some language around it so that we understand that when people put demands on us and we start to feel discomfort around that, we have some language to talk about it. Okay, so I want to look at three types of demands here that Herod put on the wise men. There were three types of external demands. The first one was that there was a productivity demand, right? He said, go find the shell. In fact, he kind of finishes it by saying, leave no stone unturned. And I'll be honest, this is one that I am very guilty of myself. I'm a very productive person. I'm a very driven person. I'm a very efficient person. I spend a lot of my time listening to podcasts about how to get more efficient at things. And I think this is something that a lot of us are guilty of or at least have as one of our characteristics is that we are very driven people. In fact, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just last month suggested that this last month was the highest month of productivity since pre-COVID here in the United States. We are very productive people. But there's a question that I think comes up that's important, which is where does that productivity come from? When it's internally motivated, when it's intrinsic to who we are, there's no problem with that whatsoever. But I do wonder how often we as individuals feel the need to just be more productive because of the demands of society around us that say, stretch your day, you only need to sleep six hours, five hours, four hours, three hours, two hours, one hour, none. Just get more done, right? How often does that happen to us? And so when those things happen, I just want to give you language to say that sometimes People make productivity demands on you, and when that happens, feel free to just name it. Again, there's nothing wrong with being productive, it's just important that we know where it comes from. The second type of external demand that Herod makes here is an availability demand, right? He says, as soon as you find this child. I wonder how often this happens to us, right? We're doing something and someone else says, I just need you to drop everything else you're doing." As soon as you do this thing, I need you to fulfill this requirement that I have on you. Again, not to say that this is always wrong, right? If you are the parent of a young child and that child gets hurt, it's very appropriate to drop everything you're doing to go take care of the child. If this building catches on fire, it's very appropriate for us to say, move, right? Not to check to see how you're feeling about it. But there are times that we need to understand that there are people who we feel discomfort when they ask us to do things because they're constantly saying like as soon as you can do this and it starts to create some discomfort within us the third type of demand that herod makes here is an emotional labor demand he says i'll join you at once here and there are definitely times again none of these are intrinsically bad it's just important to realize that we can name them when they happen that There are times in our lives where it's important for us to be able to manage our emotions and then be able to kind of bear the burdens for other people, right? But sometimes that can get really exhausting. We just don't have it. We have had a very long week with a bunch of other external pressures. And so it can honestly even be when things are supposed to be really fun. I know there's a lot of people here probably this week who had a lot of things that you were really looking forward to, holiday parties and big dinners. And it just seemed like while that was supposed to be fun, it suddenly got very emotionally draining because people were asking you to take care of them too on something that you were wanting to do. Like I said earlier, none of these by themselves are bad, right? It's perfectly normal and it's good to ask someone to help you do something. It's perfectly good to seek counsel from other people it's normal and it's very good for an employer to ask an employee hey i need you to do this thing i need you to be productive or for a a teacher to tell a student that they need to do something it's also perfectly okay sometimes when it's too much for you to carry for you to ask someone hey can you carry this for me but we also need to understand that sometimes when we feel that type of discomfort when it feels like it's too heavy for us that it's okay to recognize what's going on there. And so I just want to kind of give you some language around that to know that it's really draining. After that, after Herod says these things, it's the part of the story that most of us are familiar with, right? The wise men leave, they show up at the home of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and they present him with the gold, the frankincense and myrrh. And we're kind of familiar with that part of the story. But it's actually the next part that I want to spend the rest of our time in, okay? Okay. Because after they have encountered the divine, something else happens. And that's the second main point for today, which is this. An encounter with the divine can remind us to say no. This last week with Christmas and everything else, with all of the thoughts about spirituality, we have had opportunities to kind of think about, like, what does it look like to wrestle with these questions? And I think that there's a place here where the wise men can show us that an encounter with the divine can remind us to say no. In, in the story, there are a couple of pretty weird parts, actually, and this is one of them. It says in verse 12, that God warned the wise men in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they returned to their own country by a different way. Now, no one's exactly sure how this happened because I don't know about you, but most of the time when I have a dream, someone else doesn't have that exact same dream at the same time. <laughs> Right, just like this last week, I was reminded on Facebook that three years ago, I woke Morgan up in the middle of the night giving a speech, which is kind of one of the vocational hazards of what I do for a living. Uh, but I woke her up, and I was giving this speech, and there was this particular spot that woke her up with me saying, change doesn't require moments, it requires momentum, which was shocking to her because A, I was asleep, B, she was asleep, and C, she wasn't having that same dream, <laughs> And I think that oftentimes we have this happen, right? We don't dream at the same times as other people. But somehow this warning that God gave to the wise men required them or encouraged them to do a different thing. I do find it interesting, by the way, that this word for warning that Matthew uses is a very unique word. You see, this word is the only time in the Bible that it uses this Greek word, okay, try saying that a few times. And what it is, is it's a legal calling or a warning often describing a transaction of something based on its true worth. Like I said, this is the only time in the Bible it ever uses this particular word. But the thing that I find interesting about this word is this, the root word there that's within that word is the same word that when the authors of the rest of the New Testament would describe what happened when someone who was of a different faith tradition transition to following the way of Jesus, they would often say that these people were called Christians. And that word called was this exact same root word. It kind of had this notion that they had given up the thing that was of lesser value for the thing that was of greater value. It was a transactional word to say where something belongs. And I think, and, and I could be wrong here about this, but I think that there's something special about the interaction that we have with God, that we have with the divine, that allows us to see what is of the highest priority and focus on that intentionally and see the other things that maybe aren't as important and put them to the side. It gives us permission to say no. They had the opportunity to see that it was a value of them to seek and to serve the Christ child, to bring him the gifts. And it was also of way less value of them to follow the hierarchies and the rules that had been set that said you always follow what the king says. By the way, the same pattern shows up constantly in the Bible. It shows up in the stories of Jesus where he would be uh, teaching and healing people and doing all of these amazing things. And then it would just say that he just quit and would go off and pray or go off and be by himself. It's the same narrative that we see at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation poems and how it talks about how God worked. And then there was a day of rest. In the book of Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, it says the same thing. Like, we honor God, we love people, and then there's supposed to be a time for us to say no. As I mentioned earlier, though, by the way, this is hard for me, but sometimes I have to be really intentional about it. And I love coffee. So last month, I had the opportunity to do just that. Last month, right around the week of Thanksgiving, my wife Morgan and I took the opportunity to run down to uh, Mississippi and to Louisiana for about a week and just kind of say no before the hustle and bustle of everything else that would show up in the season. And while we were there, we went by this place, Cafe Du Monde. Yeah, yeah we did. Uh, and uh, Cafe Du Monde is an amazing Restaurant. There's a picture that I have of Café du Monde that I took at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by the way, this is a picture that's obviously late at night. But at 10 o'clock in the morning even, every single table was full on a Tuesday morning and the line was all the way down the street. Café du Monde a really interesting place to me, by the way. And here's the reason. First of all, uh, they opened in 1862. And they have been open 24 hours a day, seven days a week every day except for Christmas Day and if a hurricane gets too close. uh, Since then, basically. The other thing that I find to be really interesting about them is that their menu is incredibly limited. At Café de Monde, you can get coffee however you want as long as it's black or with milk. Starting in 1988, they added iced coffee. (laughs) And as far as food goes, you can get a French beignet. That's it. It's basically like a little puff pastry they put powdered sugar on. And that is their entire menu. That's it. And you know what? It's kind of interesting to me that they have said no to all of the other options. They've said no to everything else to prioritize the thing that they do really, really well. And in a world, in French Quarter, where you can walk five feet and find literally anything in the world, we saw several streets that were basically empty. And then a line out the door for this very, very limited menu. So with tomorrow being the start of the new year, I want to give you permission to follow the story of the wise men. I want to give you permission to follow the story of Jesus and the beginning of the, what we call Old Testament. I wanna give you the story and the opportunity to follow the example here of Cafe Du Monde to make an intentional choice not just a lazy choice cause you don't feel like making other drinks, but an intentional choice to say no tomorrow. Instead of adding things to your new year's resolution, take something off. I know that there is a chance and I know it's a very small chance, but on January 15th, there will still be a few people who are working out. <laughs> but if you're looking to make a new year's resolution that you might actually keep Think about taking something off of your list. Think about, is there something, some external demand that you've been listening to that you need to just intentionally say, I need to prioritize my time somewhere else. So how do you do that? I wanna give you a couple of things that we use here at the venues that might help you with this. And there, there are lots of different paths to do this with, I'll just tell you what ours is that we think about this when we think about things that are the most important. And these four things, they were originally stated by Craig Rochelle, We kind of modified it for ourselves. But here's what they are. There's four levels of priorities. And so I want you to think about where you fit on these with the different things that you do. The first set of things are things that are mission critical. The things that are mission critical to you. These are the things that if they cease to exist, you're not who you are. Okay? Uh, realistically, most of us have between two and five of these at most. Here at the venues, we might say it this way, that the things that are mission critical are communicating in weekly meetings that every person is loved by God, created to be good, affirmed in who they are, and capable of making a difference to those in the world around them. So we just say that very clearly. You are loved just like you are. You are affirmed just like you are here. You're celebrated just like you are here. And you're capable of making a difference in this area, just like you are. Nothing added, nothing at all. If we stop communicating that, we're not who the venues is anymore, right? By the way, that doesn't have to just be communicated on a stage here. We communicate that on Thursday nights at More Than. We communicate that at, uh, in students' venue and in kids' venue. We communicate that on Thursday nights when we do our meals that Kim leads up or on Friday mornings and we do that regularly when we are communicating to people, right, that they are loved. For you as an individual, this may be in a variety of ways, but you might just say, I am blank and fill it in. These are the priorities. And by the way, if you're watching online right now, you might pause the video and ask the people that you're watching with, what does this look like for me? Maybe for you, if you're in here today at lunch, maybe talk to people. what are the two or three things that really define who I am? For me, I would say that I'm a lover of my wife and I'm a teacher. And whether that was in a public school or here on the stage at the venues, those are the things that kind of define who I am. The second set of priorities are the supporting goals. These are the things that if they get delayed for too long, level one goals get missed. Okay. So here at the venues prior to COVID, we might've said that a level one goal was meeting physically in this room. And then we decided, you know what? Actually, it communicates to other people that they are loved more when we choose to not gather. And then when we do gather, that we choose to come sporadically and that we wear masks. Now, if we don't meet together for a long time, we start losing something. There's something really good about looking eyeball to eyeball with someone else. There's something healthy that comes from that. But there are times that it's okay if a level two goal gets delayed for a short amount of time. Level three goals, then, are your spice of life goals. These are the things that round out your experience and they may change over time. Like I said, for Morgan and I, we love to travel, we love to see things. Part of that is because I like to use them as examples when I teach. It's helpful. But if all of a sudden I couldn't travel anymore, that's okay. And then level four is this. Level four are the things that are someone else's things. These are the demands that other people feel like they need to make on you. And it's okay to say no to that. Now, please hear me. This is not an excuse not to take care of the least of these. It is not an excuse to leave someone in a lurch. But oftentimes we end up saying yes to everyone else's demands to such a degree that we can't even live the life that God has intended for us to live. Said a different way, Craig Groeschel said this, you will never maximize your effectiveness by responding to other people's priorities. You will never maximize your effectiveness by responding to other people's priorities. So I wanna give you permission intentionally to focus on those things that make you who you are. One final note today, by the way, is this. And this is the end of the story of the wise men, which by the way, is one of my least favorite parts of the story. But I feel like it's my responsibility to tell you this. The end of the story is pretty awful. In verse 16, it says this. When Herod saw that the wise men had tricked him, he was furious. So he gave an order to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area who were two years old or younger. This was in keeping with the time he learned from the wise men. Now it doesn't say this, but I imagine that the wise men as they left, if they'd heard this story, they might've beaten themselves up a little bit. Was this my fault? Should Should I have maybe gone against what my conscience said to do? Should I have gone against the things that I thought were most important? Could it have been avoided had I just not done that? Now I was always told growing up that this was some kind of like mass killing. But I wanna share this with you. In my study this week, I ran across this statement from Reverend Donald Senior and said this, although the despotic nature of Herod is well attested historically, there is no independent historical record of this incident. And that may shake you a little bit. I was always raised that this was like some huge massacre. And while that's complicated for me, honestly, like I said earlier, there's this piece where we have to wrestle And as we untangle, there's these parts. And so I wanted to say this, that while maybe the facts of the story aren't the same as what we were raised with, maybe there's some truth there that we can understand anyway. And so that's the last thing I want to leave you with today, which is this. Other people may be upset or lash out because of your boundaries, and that is not your fault. Other people may be upset or lash out because you say no or you have boundaries, and that is not your fault. No one ever talks about the story of the wise men and says that it was their fault that these children were killed. They always blame it on Herod. And I feel like it's our responsibility to tell you that if you prioritize the things that the divine says that you need to do, that you love other people, that you dedicate yourself to doing that, there will be people that say, but but what about me? If you focus on the marginalized, there will be people say, but but what about me? And I want to tell you this, that when that happens, they may get upset and that It's part of reality. You have to determine what you are willing to say no to so that you can focus on the things that are the highest priority to you. And so that's my goal for you today. I want you to think about what those things are that if they weren't there, that you wouldn't be who you say you are. What are those things that show that you love God and that you love others, that you have a life that is driven by love? And I wanna tell you this, if you need to practice that, that's perfectly okay. You have four hours and 26 minutes before Kansas City plays. (laughs) And I want to give you permission. Just like you might practice saying some of these words that we said earlier, you may need to practice saying no. And so we have some tools for that, right? We have the Go Deep notes that are available online. They're also out available in the lobby. Maybe grab a friend and today over lunch, practice. What are my priorities? What do I need to say no to? So that the year 2024, whatever resolutions I make, are things that might actually work. So if you're looking to do that, like I said, the go deep notes are there. Uh, Thursday, by the way, we're going to have an opportunity as well for you to kind of practice that because we're going to look at something here at the venues. We're going to have more than here, but in a collaboration between more than and the LGBTQI+ group, we're going to be showing the movie 1946, which is a movie that talks about how the word homosexual got inserted into the Bible problematically <laughs> and how that has created a lot of problems. And so if you want to kind of figure out how we untangle those things, understanding that those are boundaries and places that people might push back, we'd love to have you here Thursday as well. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Joey.